Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Michael Unterberg and this and this is the JU Israel Teachers Lounge Podcast. I am here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How you doing, Alan? Doing great, Mike. Good to see you. Good to see you. And uh, settle a bet for us listeners. I think today's topic is so broad and big that it will take multiple episodes. Alan thinks it's bite sized and we can do it in twenty minutes. Well, I don't. I don't think that it. It needs to be only done in 20 minutes, or, ha- or I think that you could do at least a piece of it. Okay, so let's see. You already know by looking at the length of this episode how long this podcast is. I don't think we'll be done in 20 minutes. Uh, so I guess the bet will be settled before I even upload. Um, but uh, 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 thank you. We've been getting uh, wonderful feedback from previous episodes. People like the sound clips. Of listening to, uh, I'll try to do that when it when it when it applies. Definitely, good, uh, definitely a good uh, extra bit there with the sound clips. I like it also. Yeah, I think it makes you when you're listening instead of us explaining it to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak. I think uh, there's value to that. Um, we just don't have that much editing time, so so that doesn't happen so often. We're also not directly always quoting people. Uh, today's topic is, I think, a rather complex one. Uh, and I would even say a very sensitive one. You know, they say not to talk about politics and religion if you don't want to get into an argument. And this one, of course, deals with both head on. And that is what usually is referred to as the religious status quo in Israel. Um, when Israel was founded as a Jewish state, obviously um, the separation of religious religion and state is going to be different in Israel than it is in, let's say, the United States of America. I think it'll be more, it was going to be more similar to the European model. Israel is a society is much more like um, the European model. Alan, if you could just lay out in in very brief overview, um, how did the early Israeli government decide the role religion would play in the state? And then what was decided? What what roles did they think religion should play in state and law in Israel? And I, I do think people... Um, get sort of confused in this topic. I've had students ask me if Israel is a theocracy. It certainly is not. It's a democracy. There is separation of religion and state, but religion is embedded in the state in a way that certainly to people from the United States is less um, familiar. So if you could just give me a bit, like just very sort of overview history of how Ben-Gurion set it up and then what he set up. Okay, so that's a big question. Uh, I think the best way to answer it is to realize that Israel's legal system is um, divided into um, a few different areas. Um, Mainly if we talk about general legal issues like someone steals something or someone has to sue someone or all of those things. Criminal criminal law or civil law. law, Right. Well, that gets difficult because it's whatever. But those laws... Um, are not based on religious laws. That's where many people get like confused and think, oh, Israel's a theocracy. Or, and we get this all the time, as Michael said. I, he's, I all the time get it from my students when I ask them, is Israel, you know, what's Israel's legal system? Oh, it's based on Israel, uh, Jewish law, halacha. No, it's based on actually British common law, um, mostly because of the British mandate. And then, of course, uh, there are certain land laws that, are based on Ottoman or even Jordanian, depending where you are, and all those kinds of things. Putting that aside now, okay, so that's the general legal system in Israel. When it comes to what I call um, personal status issues, such as marriage, death, um, identity, identity meaning what what is your your um, 
uh, I'm going to say it's weird to say, but nationality slash religion, um, those are all defined by religious laws. So, for instance, um, it, to be defined as a Jew in the state of Israel, you have to um, be born to a Jewish mother um, or if you're in Israel, have a conversion through an Orthodox Jewish court that's recognized by the state. Or if you're coming from outside of Israel, be have a conversion recognized by a um, Jewish community. Let's put it that way. So it doesn't necessarily have to be Orthodox, and the state of Israel will let you make Aliyah, but not necessarily recognize you as a Jew for other things. And that starts really getting confusing because the deal that essentially was made um, in the beginning of the statehood was that the arbiters of this personal status issues, to, talking about religion, would be the Orthodox, um, recognized Orthodox courts by the state of Israel. Um, and so if someone wants to get married, um, which is a personal status, you're changing your status from a single person to a married person, or someone gets divorced, you're changing your status from a divorce of married person to a divorced person, you need to go to a um, Jewish religious court if you're Jewish. And then, so how does Israel take care of its minorities and deal with its minorities? If you're Muslim, you have to go through your religious courts. Christian, same thing. So basically, there is no such thing when it comes to personal status issued as call as civil um, civil courts, right? So if you have personal status issues, all have to be are all determined by um, you, the religion that you are identified with in the state of Israel. Again, there are certain caveats to this. The way you get around it um, in nice, good Talmudic ways, this court of the state of Israel is also recognized things such as if a if a um, a, far, uh, a marriage is recognized by a recognized state in the world, you have, uh, right? then your marriage will be recognized. So therefore, if, you want, if a person wanted to marry a non-Jew and they were a Jew, they could leave the country and marry somewhere else, come back, and then will be recognized as married. That also happens, in, for instance, with um, homosexual, lesbian, um, different kinds of marriages that would not be recognized in the Orthodox Jewish courts or Muslim courts or Christian courts. Um, the state will recognize if they're done outside of Israel. Uh, so, what about issues like um, state institutions? Uh, I know are supposed to be kosher or shut down on Shabbat, things like that. Who oversees, you know, the army-based kitchens or museums or uh, state institutions and kashrut? How does kashrut work? So, for again, for all the religions, so they are they are recognized state positions in the different religions for the authorities. So, if we're just going to focus on the Jewish authority for now, so there's the 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 rabbinate, the chief rabbinate of Israel, which is um, identified as Orthodox, and they oversee all these issues. Um, so, in fact, uh, all schools are supposed to be kosher. <laughs> when I am back in a, in a previous. Uh, public schools. All public schools, yeah. Right, but, sorry, state-run institutions like a public school. When I was uh, in a previous life, when I came to Israel and decided I wanted to be a social worker, and I w was doing my master's for social work at Hebrew U, and I was doing um, – uh, I had to do, like, field work. Like, you have to uh, – so I was working at a shelter for physically and sexually abused teenage um, teenage girls, and – there was a nice, you know, it was like a home for maybe 20 girls. I don't know how many there were now, but 20 girls, right? In really bad shape, obviously. And there was a nice two-dot kashrut on the wall right next to the kid who made, you know, a grilled cheese. Because <laughs> it had to be. So there was a two-dot kashrut. And some 
Shkiach and some but there was no like these kids did whatever they wanted in these places. But because it was a state institution, it was mandated to be kosher. Let's hope that that is. Uh, the, I mean, the grilled cheese was probably okay. But. <laughs> uh, not the grilled cheese. Did I say grilled cheese? Yeah. Oh, I meant cheeseburger. Sorry. Oh, that changes the story quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, you think I couldn't even say it. <laughs> but, uh, or, you know, other things. There's clearly not, um, there's no, there were, in this small little institution, there was clearly no supervision over over Kashrut or anything else. Um, that's why you'll see actually interesting things in, in history. If you look, you can even see clips. Like when I remember particularly Robin at one point, I had to go to the UN on Shabbat. And like he walked, you know, he was not, he was a secular Jew completely. No, never, you know, he walked because that he was a prime minister of Israel and that was his thing. So you have great shots of Rabin with, um, and it was raining, of someone carrying an umbrella over his head as he's walking through the students of New York to the UN. Wow. <laughs> Without getting into the uh, exactly. Jewish law of that and how that exactly. works. So, so that's actually, I think what comes through is that, that the, the, the deal that was being made was a Jewish character of a state, of the state and not necessarily halachic um, except in the personal status issues but I was actually talking about is my class so hold on so, so hold on so the rabbinate has oversight of national institutions need a Jewish character and individuals status uh, well no national institutions also need certain halachic standards to keep a Jewish I would say to keep a Jewish character but I would say I think the most interesting thing one could argue and this is why I had actually had my discussion with uh, uh, at my at TVA last night was like they decided that the work week would be Sunday to Friday and the day off would be Shabbat. That's huge. And in fact, it's, it, it's been, at least I remember, at least now in the last decade, that has been called into a lot of question because it's out of step with your businesses. Whereas Sunday, our banks are open here, but there's no international trade. So you're part of a global world. So what, the, what are the banks doing open? And then they're closed on Friday because it's a day off. Well, you also have bank holidays and national holidays work on a Jewish Jewish calendar. So, so, so Jewish, calendar, Jewish calendar was a huge decision. I think bigger than maybe any other decision was the Jewish calendar, that we'd be following the Jewish calendar. And by the way, you can write your checks with a Jewish, with a Jewish date in this country. Um, so I think that that is a huge decision that's made early on in terms of the character of the state. So, how was this decided? Who 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 drew these lines between character of the state? So, character of the state and personal status issues fall into the hands of the rabbinate. Yeah, well, those were deals that were made with the Orthodox parties in the in the in the beginning of the years. But those deals were made even before the state. I mean, those are. Uh, I mean, Ben Gurion, Ben Gurion himself, and 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 other people from the Jewish agency would meet with rabbinic leaders, and these are the compromises that they reached. It, it basically, what happens in, if we don't want to over history everybody, but in 1929, the Jewish agency is founded. And what does the Jewish agency? Jewish, Jewish agency is basically is what we call Mindina Baderach, the state on the way. The Jewish agency starts developing itself as a representative organization, central representative organization of all the Jews in the land. I would say a proto-government. Yeah. Right, so in 29, it's, it's, it, that's the vision. It doesn't get there till 47, really, right? I mean, it's a proto-government, but it, it, sees, it's, it, yeah, it's a, it sees itself as the representative. It wants to be, so therefore it has to get everybody in Israel on board, and it gets most of the Jews. There are those who reject Zionism completely. That's what I'm talking about. They're a very small group, but even the, the, the religious and even what we would call today ultra-Orthodox came under that banner and to do that so deals have to be made like in any government and the deal is is that that the religious would have control over the religious character and who are the religious here at the time the main power um or the orthodox because in israel unfortunately there's this 
um, divide, right? Usually we see things very black and white. They're secular and, and religious, and the religious are orthodox and the secular are not. And that's one of the problems we still live with today, even though people live on a spectrum, really. And, um, but it's a consciousness thing. So in 1929, they're already making those deals. By the time the state comes around in 1948, the Jewish agency is a government l'chol davar. They basically just have to name, change the name to the state of Israel. They have a ministry of education, of religion, of foreign affairs, of Well, in 1948, economics. they go from being a proto-government to a provisional government. And then after elections, they become a government right. government. Correct. But what I mean is they have all those departments. Um, uh, uh, you know, that, that's what they were... What about doing. decisions about the Orthodox and the army? How is that decided? So I think people often actually get this mixed up. I often hear here in class. Oh, it's a theocracy because that's why the Orthodox don't have to go to the army. That's like a whole different deal that's done, right? This whole setup of the character and the Jewish character, again, is being worked out in the Zionist movement from the first Zionist Congress. If we go back to the First Zionist Congress, and that's what we What, the decision about. not to draft Orthodox Jews to the army when they're no, in yeshiva no, no. is not made at the First Zionist Congress? No, no. The whole religious character of the state, I said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that for sure, right. That's but what about specifically that? So issue. that, so I'm saying, so those are two, di- I'm saying those are two different issues. The, the First Zionist Congress yeah, are already... I, I think, I mean, I actually think that's, that's a, you, you, by laying it out in stages the way you did, I think you're making that pretty clear, right? That right. it's not, it's not one, we approach it as we encounter it as this one big mishmash, but you're saying... These decisions get made in stages at different stages of development as they're rel- as they become relevant. Right, exactly. And so when the, when we had now have an army that there's a draft because up until that there's a state of Israel there's no draft there's a you know well maybe quasi draft but or a, or a societal draft but they, when, once they have the draft so they have to make a decision and so basically Ben Gurion makes a, 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 an agreement with what we'll call today the ultra orthodox like Israel and and others who are in that grouping um, from the uh, that 400 Talmudei Yeshiva, Yeshiva students, would be able to um, not be drafted because they want to preserve the, the importance and the knowledge that to rebuild the Torah world that was lost in, in, the, in the Holocaust. That is basically a cultural decision, a recognition of the cultural importance of Torah and that world and that there are those people who get those exemptions. And over the years, there's other exemptions or uh, partial exemptions that students get. Sports, there's their sports. People who, are, who are, are, are exceptional at sports or music or other things or even academics may get an exemption or a partial exemption or special jobs in the Army so they can continue their, um, their job. I, I, when, I was doing, when I was doing my uh, – remember Miluim once, there was on a certain base by, by Givad Zev. What's Miluim? Sorry, reserve duty. And there was a, a guy there who was a, a great soccer player. Every day, he was in the army for about nine to three every day, and they went home and he went to his soccer practice from you know in the afternoons and this and that. And that was his whole army service. You know, he was it was on a base. He was just working in a in a machsan, which is what's a machsan storage area. Yeah, like uh, organizing a storage area. That was his little job. And he had to do it a few hours a day, and the rest of the day, basically. Actually, I think he even got off earlier, like right after lunch, to go. But that's the point. There was all, there's all kinds of things. Why? Because the the state recognizes that. There are cultural needs. You have a cultural contribution that may mean that you can't serve in the army like other people. Correct. Like most people. Correct, because you ha- you're giving the country something else. You have something else. So there are people who go to, to college before they go into the army. And then in the army, they basically have a job that you would look like you have a job in any civil society, but it's working for the army to well, develop you're talking about people who the army sends you to college tra- so that you will have the background to serve the army for X number of years as yeah. – Whatever they trained you for. Right. And in a particular job. So, th- so that, that was, uh, you know, it, in the market, you could say, of all these different things that, the, that society needs, it was recognized that also as a Jewish country, we need, we need people who are learning Torah. And that 
That so that deal was made after the state came about. For 400 students was the original deal. And today now we know um, it's it's there's about 10,000 I think students a year. But the but people don't actually understand is some of those actually like my son was one of those <laughs> theoretically. I mean he always intended on an army, but because of his yeshiva. He signed up for two years. He got an exemption. He was part of that. And now he's in the army. Thank God. Tomorrow, tomorrow he's having his Tekes Hashbaz, swearing in induction ceremony, which we're very excited about. But so, yeah, how excited? How do you feel? Uh, very. Uh, it's very uh, in, overwhelming and interesting. I would add to that that the Philadelphia Cemetery that got – I keep thinking about this. The Philadelphia Cemetery that got um, uh, vandalized this week. So I have relatives there, particularly my great-grandmother's grave is there. Um, so I'm like, yes. what are this? Yeah, I don't know if it was vandalized still because they're, they're making the list because it was a it's a police uh, a scene so they couldn't go in so they're making the list now. But just thinking of that, like here in Philadelphia, my the vandal you know the vandalized cemetery where my ancestors are buried. And on Thursday, my son is having his uh, big uh, first big ceremony in the army as a as an infantry um, uh, soldier is very powerful in the Givati unit. I don't know that dichotomy is uh, very strong for me. Well, I would say it's it's progress. I mean, it's an unbelievable. Are you can you post pictures to Instagram so we can see? Uh, yeah, God willing, post pictures to Instagram. I think I'll Skype with my parents so they can see because they couldn't make it. Yeah, yeah. But of course, the weather's supposed to be terrible. So, where is it? Is it here in the old city or at that Latrun? They, oh, Latrun. I didn't know Givati was at Latrun. No, they're supposed to be in the old city, but his Magad, Magad is like the commander of the of the one of the big commanders. Decided it's too complicated in the old city. You know, parking's difficult. That's a, a fairly good concern, but still, I was very much looking for it <laughs> via the hotel. I've been to ones at Latrun. It's still very, very powerful and moving. Right. It's very powerful and moving. I was uh, for uh, my nephew who was in uh, the Shuryon in the armored. Uh, what is that? What do you call it? Tanks. I don't know. What do you Tanks, call it? Armored. 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 Yeah, so it's. I mean, I was. He's my nephew, and I, I mean, I love him, and I was crying. And so, so I can only imagine what it's going to be like for your son. Yeah, well, you're a softy, so that's true. I always. Anytime you have a large number of people together singing Hatikva, I will probably cry. But I was crying before that, also watching. You know, my nephew uh, swear in. I was thinking of what kind of I could get it, what kind of begot I could get him or something, so he could say a Shechianu. Mm. I think you know, uh, but you know. We'll Dude, I, I think you, you can say a Shekhiano. <laughs> I don't know. That's why I, I, I opened that door for you to think of. Can yeah, you say yeah. a Shekhiano or something like that? Uh, there are certain things. I don't know. Um, but, uh, well, I mean, he's getting a new Tanakh, I guess maybe. Because, you know, they, you, get it, you also get your Bible. at. Uh, and then they punch you in the chest. <laughs> um, so back to the status quo. How, how has that worked? Uh, I... I there, there, it is always, always, of course, open to question because something that was – and the reason I, I pushed you on the historical aspect is decisions made for a particular moment don't necessarily work as you go into the future. And I would say that here in this particular issue of religious status quo questions is exactly the kind of thing that decisions that were made that worked then, A, you're going to have unintended consequences, and B, they may not work as well for you know, other times – for what we're for for later on, so can you give me some examples of where the status quo is seen as problematic? Where where is it bumped into? Uh, certainly, I, I don't think necessarily as a society, you know, having kosher food at museums or like the fact that the cafeteria at Yav Hashem is kosher, I don't think is like a controversial issue. I don't think that's. I think kashrut in general. Again, we live in our world, so you know, 
It's hard to judge, right? But I think it's hard to judge. you certainly have plenty of not kosher options in Israel. I don't yeah. think. I think obviously, any time that people feel forced to do something, that's when uh, that's when it becomes controversial. And the question is: Is it then counterproductive? And 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 really, where the where the issue of force comes in, kfiadatit of we're forcing religious behaviors on you. Uh, is really in those personal status issue. I think is mainly where those come in. Yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much where 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 it comes to the fore. I mean, one e- even though still most Israelis get married through the rabbinate, and few the minority still choose to go abroad because that's an option that they have when they're going to rabbinate. There's 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 an underlying feeling that the that the chief rabbinate has become a a bureaucracy, and many and like many bureaucracies, it can be it can be cold and and alienating. Um, and the processes that you have to go through, cold and alienating. So, so when people getting married, they feel it. Even if they choose to get married, many will will relate to that as a necessary bureaucratic um, part to be married by some rabbi somewhere, and that's not the the core of it. Which is a little bit sad for us. Who? Well, that's a, that's the first layer. The first layer is I don't I, I I don't find this religion speaks to me. I don't want to be married by a rabbi. Well, if you want to be married, you do have to be married by a rabbi. That's level one. And level two is. Those rabbis as bureaucrats very often can be insulting, off-putting, and you don't want at this moment, in, at, these, at such a moment in your life, you don't want to. It's 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 it. it yeah, it hurts the, the the whole. You want this to be this beautiful moment in your life, and here you are dealing with this bureaucrat to get your job done, and he's he's being insulting or rude or. Or even if it's not the rabbi, it's the you know the bureaucrats that you have to go through the system to register for marriage. You know, everything has its 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 system, and then. Then there's the uh, the the very sad cases of people who are not recognized um, by the state of Israel as being Jewish, even though they've self-defined and have have Jewish roots from one way or another in all kinds of different situations, and so they can't get these personal services like married or it happens if a soldier who um, is has a Jewish father who grew up in Israel but his mother is not Jewish and grew up in Israel cannot be buried in a cemetery with. Um, you know, a military cemetery with uh, with Jews because he's not Jewish. So th- those places have very become very a very um, intense times of one's life when one wants to have meaning and and importance come clash up with what can seem as a very hard, cold, foreign system, and sometimes you know even worse, um, a malicious system. People feel. Yeah, and and I think very often people. People talk about having a a, a, a a more solid wall between religion and state as a as an argument made by the people who don't want religion in their lives. But the truth is, there's there's also a very strong uh, religious argument to separating it, which is that if you want religion to have a positive influence in people's lives, if you want uh, if you want people to find religion beautiful and meaningful. Then these awkward situations of of being forced into situations that are uncomfortable ends up their their rare interactions with Judaism are negative, or their regular their 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 rare interactions with traditions of the Jewish religion uh, end up being these negative experiences, and so that pushes people, it creates resentment. I think I think it's fair to say, well, Roger Williams used to say. Uh, back in the colonial days of, uh, you, you know, what became the United States. Uh, and, and he said um, he was against, 
he he as a very pious puritan was against government implementation of religious rules because he said that forced piety uh, reeks in the nostrils of god that you are hurting the religion by giving it power that religion has its best influence when you take power away so so I, the thing i'll push back on that which has been a which is a conflict for us as the Jewish people is that until the modern age there was no distinction between politics and religion there wasn't a concept of that the Jewish people's cultural expression the expression of who we are as a people was through religion and religious rituals and religious law um, it, w- it was one and the same our code of law didn't distinguish between um, you know laws that have to do with God and laws that have to do with people. Um, if we look at the Ten Commandments we just read a couple weeks ago, Ten Commandments have both of those. That's the fundamental of what Judaism is. So this change that the modern era brought on it is a change that after you know, 120, 30 years now that we're working out the Zionist thing is, is, is full of tension and we're still trying to figure out how do we, how do, we do that, um, where we retain a Jewish nature and character of our state, but yet don't force what we would call classic traditional religious ritual on the on people look it, it becomes it becomes a particularly difficult issue when it comes to status in other words if marriages and divorces aren't overseen by the religious authority then you're going to create all sorts of people in Israel that Jews that religious Jews would be worried about dating or marrying in other words it, it becomes a real problem not only for the character of the state but also for unity mm-hmm. was the nice thing about living in Israel is my kids should be able to marry anybody they meet in university for the most part. And by the way, we haven't even touched on like, you know, school curriculum. It has to do with religious, you know, what, what you learn and, and how you learn. Well, it. that's true. The public, there are two branches in the public yeah. school of Israel. There's the religious branch and the secular branch. And, and that's even the secular branch learns some things like Bible, right? Tanakh, they learn things. But, but we've, we've separated ourselves off that. And, and more and more religious people are living in exclusively religious neighborhoods or, 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 or settlements such and secular people also or whatever in between. You know, I live in a, a moshav that is religious moshav. You look, live in a settlement that's defined as a religious settlement more or less, even if it's, I don't know if it's... More or less. I, pe- I, def- I Dafka picked one to live in that was less because it was a little more, at least for for my area of the world, theoretically. It's, it's theoretically a little bit heterogeneous. I mean... Right. Cars are allowed in on Shabbat. Cars do drive around. I mean, my what, people on my block who are not Shabbat, Shabbat. Right. But again, it's a theoretical because there's such a small mute in your... They are. They're, they're a minority in the community. Um, uh, I just want to throw those things out. Now, where it's come across in terms of this last week, what it does every month, I, I think it's more in the consciousness of mostly but not exclusively North Americans um, over, over the Kotel, which is a national symbol. Um, but has increasingly over the years been turned into one an Orthodox synagogue. And people um, who have other religious Jewish traditions, such as conservative or reform, or even you could say a different interpretation of Orthodox law, um, have fought for now maybe 30 years to have uh, a space that they can um, uh, call in terms of the Kotel be... D- relate, pray, and experience it in, in their tradition, whether it be with an egalitarian, in egalitarian minion or um, women reading from the Torah or whatever it is in that. And that has become a very public confrontation and more and more confrontational over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that is, that's a slightly, that is one of the religious conflicts in Israel, but that's a, that's a 
conflict of people who express religion differently trying to share a national space. I don't know that that's, that is one of the areas of religious tension here, but I don't know that it's the same as this status quo problem of... Um, it's also status quo, because they all argue status quo at the Kotel. Yeah. Yeah, 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 but it's a different... As defined by a certain particular branch of Orthodox rabbinate. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it's and it's also an issue of power, that we have yeah. the power to say how this is going to be set up and used, and you don't get to say. And uh, look, I, I would argue the last 300 years, rabbinic power has been diminishing for a whole set of reasons. Uh, you know, you have the emancipation of the Jews. Well, those were right. And if you go in academia, right, if we, they like to point to the the big controversy between, between Revivishis and uh, um, Revemden, um, you know, that that broke the whole, you know, aura of rabbinic. Uh, I, I think that's true, that fight over who was a Sabbatine and who wasn't. But that I think that loss of prestige, you know, it's like when your parents fight and you, you're kind of uncomfortable being around both of them. But that I don't know that it would have diminished rabbinic authority if not for the fact that Jews as citizens were moving into broader society. And so the rabbis literally lost control. Like the biggest power rabbis had was excommunication. You know, if you violate this policy, I will tell everyone in the community to shun you. Well, if you're shunned by the community, you're a pariah. Where are you going to go? Well, in the modern world, you can go down the block and become a secular person and just you're fine so so the rabbinic world has had a problem over the last 300 years learning to deal with diminishing power well, i mean I, we have to say it i mean people don't often because we like to talk especially those of us in the religious world if you look at our pictures we're obviously more associated with religious world but like oh look at all those coming back today and the kiruv movement and people are so interested in judaism and that is true it's not bad it's like it's a good thing we believe in that but we also have to recognize that in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, in droves they were leaving the religious world. In droves. I mean, if but like exactly what you're saying, 300 years ago, 100% of those who who identified with the Jewish world would be called halachic Jews, like right. halachically rigorous Jews. And today we're you know in Israel maybe we're 17%, 10% worldwide maybe, right? So clearly something happened <laughs> that. that oh, but, but, and that and that to me and that to me is is what I find missing in what I hear in Orthodox thinking. And, and this, I, I don't only mean Israel. I, I think I mean abroad as well. But we're, you know, we're mostly talking about Israel. Is this sense of, well, since we know what we're right, our job is to keep up barriers that prevent us from diluting into the population without reckoning with the fact that the majority of the Jewish nation thinks that what you're doing isn't helpful, relevant, meaningful in a, in a, in a, in a way that, that speaks to them. And so I think that that, that um, the power approach to how do we retain power is, I would argue, uh, a failing approach compared to the how can we have influence approach? How can we be more relevant? How can we be more, how can we be providing more meaning? And, and you certainly have this also within the Orthodox world, but, but it's... Uh, I, I, First of all, you have organizations that have have uh, Sohar uh, like be, Sohar would be the major one that is challenging the chief rabbinate. The team is struggling on uh, on issues of conversion and and trying to get a more uh, universally relevant approach. Yeah, I would say uh, E team run by Rabbi Seth Farber is is a political advocacy group for um, religious um, change here, whereas Sohar is a. Um, uh, 
we want to, from within the system, create – we want to train professionals within the system who don't approach their job as bureaucrats but as ambassadors trying to provide meaning and relevance from Jewish tradition. Right. Um, thank you for uh, filling that in. <laughs> I, was try, I was struggling for like the, that catchphrase that you would call that. Uh, like it's a change organization also. Not being jerks? <laughs> Is that a catchphrase? <laughs> That's a good one, not being yeah. jerks. The, the, what, I, what my problem with something like Zohar is, is, is it's, it's because of the overall, maybe this is getting too confused and you could say, well, we, this didn't reach our 20-minute thing, um, but that in, in many ways the people of Zohar who come from the national religious world, um, the national religious world lost control of the, of the chief rabbinate because of the politics in Israel and sort of... Um, not, I don't know if not playing those power politics, but sort of gave it over to the Haredi world. And today, the the chief rabbinate is infused with, with with politics that it may not have been in. Well, government involves politics, which right. is to me another reason to want re- less religion in politics. Politics is by definition about compromise and deals, and 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 it and it can be, you know, what is it? Uh, who said uh, laws are like sausages? We need them, but we don't want to see how they're made. Because there's a, there's a lot of ugly wheeling and dealing and things that, well, you don't want your rabbinic leadership, right. you know, and I, without even getting into chief ra- former chief rabbis who are going to jail. Or so, how chief rabbis are elected, which is not such a great system. But, I mean, I think it goes back a little bit to what we talk about a lot of times, which is this is after 2,000 years of the Galut, which is essentially a decentralized religious structure. Well, over time, it, can, it, it gets less and less centralized over time. Yeah. I'm saying that those 2,000 years, it became, it was a huge It evolves. It's not a monolithic, this is yeah. what the 2,000 years were like. But over the course of the 2,000 years, centralization erodes and then power itself erodes. Right. And then now we're coming back and now we're trying to re-centralize. And so, like, what is the best way to have a central Jewish identity? It's kind of what we're talking about, No. I think that is what we're talking about, and I would – I guess what I'm arguing is, and this is – you know, I'm, I'm betraying my personal leanings, but I, I, I would argue that I, I lean towards a, a non-power model that, uh, that, that you have – if you have power, you lose influence, and if you have influence, you, you have real power. Because you can really affect people's lives. I'll, I'll give you an example so of something. Would, so would you would just ask you, would you prefer to have civil marriage options in this country? Michael Unterberg would I? Yeah, I, I would. I would. I would support that. Because I think I think that most Israelis would still want – I think that for the 90% who, who would probably still want a rabbi for personal, cultural, family reasons, I think that would work. And then the people who go over to Cyprus to get married would do it here. Yeah, and you wouldn't have the fight. But you'd still have a rabbi. If you had civil marriage, so you could have a rabbi, a reform rabbi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 in other words, I think that flexibility. Look, here, here's... here's the problem you said before about the, like, making two worlds, the religious starting to question, can I have... I understand, but I, let, me, let me tell you when this issue really started to uh, percolate with me. And that was after 9-11 when President Bush got on and addressed the nation. And I remember it was a very powerful speech. And it, he said, at the, towards the end of his speech, he said, all Americans should go to their churches, synagogues, and mosques and pray for, to God for the welfare of the United States. You know, God bless the United States and the American. And I realized United States politicians are always talking about how religious they are. I could not imagine an Israeli prime minister telling Israelis to go pray to God because religion is so toxic here. 
in a way that it isn't in the States. It's so off-putting here. And the, the religious community has this feeling of, uh, I'm afraid to release power. And to a certain extent, you've lost all of your influence. Whereas in the United States, because they're powerless, they have enormous influence on Americans' lives. I, I don't know exactly what the right and the wrong is. I just know where I lean in terms of looking at these issues. So I think what we really have to determine is that Mike was right in this argument. Of <laughs> how, how long could this issue take? Because obviously we've only just scratched the surface. Um, but we're going to we're gonna have to wrap up. And I guess I owe you that beer. Uh, this is the third beer Alan owes me. Uh, maybe we'll, we'll do it for a six pack for Purim. <laughs> maybe we'll do an episode where we drink all three beers in a row and we see how uh, the podcast goes. Maybe that'll be a good Adar. That's a Purim. Yeah, we could do a Purim. Both of us keep regular Purim. That's true. Uh, we'll come in. We'll, well, we won't drive in, but we'll get in. Um, so thank you very much for listening. As always, please uh, send us feedback what you liked, what you, what you would like, and we're always happy to hear from you. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teacher's Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at juisraelgap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And... If you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys.